You go down this cliff, go left down the cliff, yeah. left, and then just tumble for a while, and then you should be there. My truth is the <laughs> truth that you will never understand. Private ownership is one single individual giving free light. Doesn't that tell you that your system is more akin to authoritarian dictatorship? It's no editing. I thought we were autonomous collectives. What the heck is a D? How come you can buy our house when it's our house and we live there? Just when these American citizens needed their rights the most, their government took them away. The rights aren't rights if someone could take them away. They have every man in a straitjacket. To leave a country is like breaking out of jail. And to enter a country is like going through the eye of a needle. I don't know if you've noticed, but our two-party system is a bowler shoot looking in the mirror at itself. Citizens. It's a pretty anarchic idea for an 80s movie. Not only go on strike, but we need to fire the bosses. This whole you getting paid more, doing less work thing, it's, it's not working out, Steve. Anyway, this program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective, mostly covering strategy and thinking uh, from the left. For the curious or the committed, promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and a commons economy, commoning, uh, discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself. Roughly in America, we have many leftists, but we do not have a left, though it's usually referred to as the left. I would counter that. The meeting point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology, those are the three lefts, and we wave their flags. All right, let's bring you up. Long time, no chat. How you doing? Living in the vampire castle? Get it out? I'm doing well. How about you? Long time, no talk. Yeah, it's been a month. Uh, I was spending it uh, helping a friend uh, books who sells books uh, on Amazon uh, and wants to get out of that. I was helping him move his warehouse of 30,000 items and plus. Oh, wow. Plus, a lot of extra stuff hasn't been sorted yet. You know, it's a. Uh... Yeah, but all that aside, uh, it was uh, a lot of hard work. I had worked harder than I usually do for a, uh, you know, left to slacker. Our precarious job situation continues. Uh, otherwise, yes. we're going we're gonna to keep doing what we actually like doing and not let uh, money constraints get in the way. Well, I got to say, I hated my last job more than I think any other job I've ever had. How many jobs have you had? Um, a couple, but that's not important. This job, mm -hmm. I was, uh, they gave me a stack of leads. So I'm calling uh, people from a list and then trying to get them to book an appointment with me. And then at the, that appointment, I show them, or I make a big show of giving them a lot of free stuff. And then at the end, I hit them with a life insurance sales pitch. And I got to say, I hated it. I hated it so much. Because you, know you, you know you're lying to people from the get-go. You're not being forced. Well, one, I'm lying to people from the start. And two, I was paid on commission only. So if I make... A hundred calls, and I'm not able to set an appointment. I don't get paid. That was a wasted day. 
exact wow same. yeah that really sucks that's not really and a job I had, is it? yeah i had three weeks of that and like i in training they were um i had trainers and they were making sales and they would sign me in for the sale so i would get paid for that training sale give you a taste and that was nice so i got like i was able to make some decent money from that place then you're like, how did they make the sales out of the calls they made? It's um, maybe they maybe they set them up so that they were dummy customers. Well, no, it's just that they are they have a lot of experience in like there's a lot of steps that go into setting a solid appointment. That most of my appointments that when I do set an appointment, the people don't show up. That it's a whole thing of on like when you call them, yeah, you they, they have didn't to want to say no. Up. So you, so they, they just want to get rid of you, but they don't want to say no. So then you go and you set up a, a Zoom scheduled meeting, and you send them the link, and then you're like, all right, just click on that link to make sure it works, and then they show up in your Zoom meeting, and then they you're supposed to text them before the meeting to let them know, and it's a a whole thing of how do we get people who don't want to show up to meetings to get into meetings so then we can scare them into thinking that they need this life uh, insurance life insurance all at the end of the day just to sell life insurance yeah oh boy yeah that's why i kind of like um even though there's always a kind of anxiousness of doing politics and canvassing and stuff like well at least you actually believe in it it's real uh, it can, in fact, engage people. You don't have to lie about anything in particular. I mean, there's nothing more insidious. I mean, of course, you can get just as bad when there's certain campaigns where it's like, oh, no, we'll lie to people. That's this, It's about winning. Think- it's about winning and gaining power. It's not about actually democracy, you know. One of the things that was most icky, I think, was that the people I was calling and talking and presenting to were union members. That it was a whole thing that... W- the life insurance company partners with labor unions. And so that way we're able to get the uh, the information about the people. And then we send them a letter and a postcard. And then we send them a letter saying that, hey, if you're interested in a $4,000 beneficiary policy, you write your phone number on this and you mail it back to us. And then those are the leads that we then call. I've, oh, yeah, I've gotten letters like that. Uh, I usually sort them into my, you know, paper spam. Like, the whole thing is that as part of being in the labor union, they got a $4,000 beneficiary policy right off the get-go. And it's like, uh, that's the free, that's, uh, that's the free policy that we go to the labor union and we're like, hey, we'll give all of your members a $4,000 uh, mm-hmm. beneficiary policy that they don't have to pay for. But in return, How we get your full count? list. Exactly. To sell them some, uh, what, what kind of policy were you them, selling? It was a mixed policy that there was a funeral benefit, whole life, a income protection term life, and then there was an accident protection plan and a hospital thing. So it was like a full tailor-made uh, package. package that we uh, combined all sorts of different products in order to bamboozle them. Show our products. Well. Like, Commodities, you know, fetishized yeah. and whatnot. And like, it's Insert weird because 
So we were supposedly giving them a product, but hopefully they're not going to ever use it. That they're going to pay us indefinitely. Yeah, and yeah, then, yeah, yeah. And then you never have not, to pay them back. Well, what, what, if it's, what about for the well, funeral, though? Do you, you try to bulk them for the – I mean, the company tries to bulk them for the funeral. Is that, I'm, I'm sure yeah, that, is, that, that happens to people. Well, there's – in part of the spiel that they taught me to give, there's a whole show about how there's one uh, – This isn't proprietary that knowledge it. that you uh, signed documents saying you couldn't reveal? Oh, I never signed a document that I – can't disclose anything okay so like I, ne- I didn't sign uh anything most companies usually force that <laughs> you know we're not hiring you unless you sign the one thing that i do feel bad about uh leaving that place is that it was unionized so like that was the first time in my life i was actually uh, a union in member. a a union member or, and or, no like, you weren't really a union you were working in a unionized shop which is not like there, yeah. there's a social distinction to be made. Yeah. Right. Cause you don't feel like you're part of a membership because if you were, then you would probably have a say on how you sell life insurance and is this product actually worth it and right. so on and so on. Uh, so speaking of products and whatever. So, um, the topic we got today, um, is property. And mostly talking about it from, I mean, like you, you were investigating mutualism and you were kind of being turned on to it. And well, so, yeah, I I like to be honest. The thing I like most about mutualism is the name. That mutualism as a word seems like a good stand-in to sort of replace socialism because uh, of the way that socialism has such like a negative connotation. Not communalism. And, uh, I think communalism sounds too close to communism. I that guess. people hear communalism and then their brain goes, they're talking about communism, but mutualism, mutualism, that sounds like something. It's, uh, well, it's not super capitalism for sure, because there's, a, as we'll yeah. discuss, there's a lot of post capitalist, anti capitalist uh, policy and, and thinking involved. It just doesn't kind of, it's an older, like the actual, like to when you use the phrase mutualism. It refers to it like precise ideology from the 19th century and a certain set of thinkers that was kind of wrapped up into social democrat politics as well as socialist politics and labor politics. Yeah. So it was well, kind of I absorbed read- in and now it's it's not like a new movement. It's just something that right. like, oh, here's a part of it that deals with specific issues of property ownership and the things that say most lefties kind of have canned responses to which we'll kind of cover as we go yeah so, so i uh yeah, go on. a little bit ago it was a while ago it was more relevant back when we actually when we first proposed the idea of this episode but i read the book what is property by prudon mm-hmm. and i found it to be fascinating in that one of prudon's biggest influences is actually the bible that he comes from or i felt he came from such a time that he lacked uh access to legitimate anti-capitalist analysis and that the closest anti-capitalist source that he had to draw from was the bible and the bible's uh 
ideas about usury and its banning of usury and money lending, like the original, like the, the OG Jesus's ideas, not the version yeah. of Jesus' ideas that's you have probably, today. Well, Luke rather than John. Right. That's well, probably was, why Marx was like as as this kind of intellectual rival was bashing him. Yeah. Mostly not because, like, because Verdun was confused. Like, he doesn't disagree with any of my conclusions. He simply, like, doesn't like how I came to them. Because I came from through this right. idealistic Christian ethics process. While he is like, no, materialism. Gotta talk about the linen. <laughs> the roles of linen. So, like, Explain things scientifically. I feel like my whole approach is that I want to marry together the ideas of both Marx and Proudhon, that I don't see them as being in conflict, that Marx is sort of the analysis of the class system and commodity production. And well, let's analysis. see, there's another French writer named Saint-Simone was mm -hmm. kind of in between. There were other thinkers even at the time that were like in between. And then there's George... Um, George of the Georgias. But before any of that, I wanted to cover something from physics.org. Or, yeah, physics.org. Oh. It's from the archaeology section, published uh, this year, actually. It's called, Like It or Not, History Shows the Taxes and Bureaucracy Are Cornerstones of Democracy. And this was written by the Field Museum of Natural History. I believe it's the one in Chicago. Hmm. I think it mentions which one. So, um, so, so it was a team of people who wrote this. The media has been rife with stories about democracy and decline, the recent coup in Myanmar, the ascent of strongman Modi in India, and of course, ex-President Trump's attempts to, well, dispu uh, dis disputing the election, all of which raise alarms about the current status of democracies worldwide. Such threats to the voices of the people are often attributed to excesses of individual leaders, well, as we know better, don't we? But while leadership is certainly important over the past decade, as established democracies like Venezuela and Turkey fell and others, well, see, this is where I think, like, is this a Normie article saying that Venezuela has, you know, fallen as a democracy? Um, well, it's in physics today. They're not uh, doing political analysis. So yeah, they're, they're not, like, they're sure not, I... yeah, they're not political scientists first. They're archaeologists. So, but, but it, it actually, it gets better. Um, but I mean, it's only in the beginning that, like, I would say these are problematic comparisons venezuela and turkey um i feel like it's less problematic and more just ignorance that they're like yeah the mainstream narrative like sure we're just gonna believe it implicitly because that's what it is yeah you know Maduro is also a strong man but, but and even though he hasn't actually censored anyone uh political scientists and pundits have largely overlooked a key factor how governments are funded in a new study in the Journal of Current Anthropology, and by the way, you could take all of this as almost like a counter-libertarian argument, but we'll, 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 we'll talk about what this all means later. So in the Journal of Current Anthropology, a team of anthropologists, they study humans, uh, assembled data on 30 pre-modern societies and conducted a quantitative analysis of the features and durability of good governance. They define these as a receptiveness to citizen voices, provision of goods and services, and limited concentration of wealth and power. The results show that society is based on a broad, equitable, managed tax system and a functioning bureaucracy, which requires it. Statistically, uh, we're more likely to have political institutions that were more open to public input and more sensitive to the well-being of the populace. This is simply 
a correlative observation. For more than a century, the accepted textbook account of democracy was that it was particularly modern and a purely Western phenomenon born of the commercial restlessness, aka, I guess, laissez-faire economics, of European nations, or particularly uh, Dutch and Anglo. However, the current crises of dem democratic backsliding have prompted a deeper dive by anthropologists and political historians into the core features, origins, and sustainability of a modern democracy. Quoting them, the decline we are seeing today in many democratic governments is difficult to get a handle on, says Richard Blayton, Professor Emeritus at Purdue, and the study's lead author. In a sense, there's a fundamental tension at the heart of every democracy, the greater good versus an individual self-interest. We wanted to identify the factors that motivate both leaders and citizens to maintain more egalitarian systems. Given the potential power to corrupt, as archaeologists, we know that the past always has lessons for the present. Blayton and his co-authors assembled data on 30 pre-modern societies, broke them down into numerically coded variables, and gen generated statistically significant scores for a good government. These included public goods, infrastructure, wider access to water, food security, bureaucratization, uh, meaning citizen voice, equitable taxation, and official accountability, like courts, and control over authorities, meaning the ability to impeach and limits on leaders' control of resources, and as well as introduced in any institution that checked others' clout. The researchers, including Gary Feynman and the Field Museum in Chicago, Lane Farger of the Instituto Político Nacionalidad in of Mieria in Mexico, and Stephen Kozaki of University of Georgia, were initially surprised by the result. The case studies covered thousands of years of human history and span the globe, from the Venetian Republic uh, in the Middle Ages to the Ming Dynasty in the Renaissance era to the Asat Kingdom in West Africa in the 1800s. But despite the great diversity of geographical, cultural, and historical contexts, there was a positive correlation between three metrics capable bureaucracies, public goods, and limits on rulers tended to occur together in relatively good governments, were largely absent in more autocratic ones. As Blayton says, although what we call good government were not common, uh, the, these good governments, only about 27% of, of the 30, it's clear that it was both globe and trans-historical societal process that existed well before Western history and influence. This unexpected finding led the authors to reconsider the broader and more causal factors that shape what democracy really is, or allow it to exist. Today, we tend to equate democracy with elections, but electoral democracies are a fairly recent phenomenon. They are not the only way to assess the voice of citizens, and elections alone are not sufficient to ensure the public's voice, or that personal power of leaders is checked. The key elements of democracies are not elections themselves, said the Field Museum's Gary Feynman, but rather features like the rule of law, checks and balances on official power, official, not unofficial, and tools to assess the will of the government. Hmm. I think leftist analysis is about trying to have great tools to, uh, to balance unofficial power as well, which would be the power of capital and economics. Economics right. is key, the authors argue. Evidence overwhelmingly demonstrates that which is basically, this is materialist Marxist kind of conclusion here, that economics forms politics. Evidence overwhelmingly demonstrates that authoritarian regimes have broad discretion over the nation's wealth for both personal and political gain. This could also apply to state socialist uh, places. 
Uh, in these studies, more authoritarian examples, there are few limits on self-serving leaders and little incentive to ensure equitable distribution of public goods in the modernism. It's no coincidence that the legend of Robin Hood arose in 14th century England, where our coding identified ill-conceived and oppressive taxing schemes that diverted wealth into private hands. It's also to pay for the Hundred Years' War, or the, no, the Hundred Years' War was to pay for barons' excesses. In the U.S., these realities were recognized during the founding of our country, well, at least by the Federalists, and that has uh, contributed to the relative longevity of our democracy, uh, says Feynman, being a little chauvinistic. Uh, James Madison put checks and balances in the Constitution because the founders knew they could not rely on the virtue of leaders alone. One of the key changes in transforming the Articles of Confederation to the Constitution was to give the federal government a stronger foundation to raise money or raise funds. Oh, yeah, because under the Articles of Confederation, uh, states could tax the citizens, but the federal government couldn't tax citizens. The federal government could only ask the states for money, and that's not exactly the best way of making money. But it, uh, it does follow the nap. It does follow the nap. You are right. And if that is something you value... Yeah. Then, yay! Well, the big argument at the time, um, this is why the Federalists were like, look, we should be up funding universities and um, standing up with the National Army, because who knows when Britain wants to invade us again, or, you know, other paranoia. Well, actually, we need a standing army to fight the indigenous people. That, that's why, uh, um, you know, to get those Seminoles out of uh, Florida, and so on, so on. Well, wasn't at that point, it was take Florida from Spain, yeah, right, right. And then once it was taken from Spain, then the Seminoles uh, were still there. Of course, it was still there. But they lived there. And if use is, if possession is the law, then uh, they own this their property. Okay, we'll get into that later. This also underlies, oh yeah. Yeah, possession being the law gets really funky once you start throwing in right of conquest in. Yeah. This also underlies the author's point that leaders, whether virtuous or selfish, are less important than the economic foundations of the government. Provisioning of public goods and the institutions, bureaucratic or otherwise, needed for both. Look at Iraq after Saddam, said Feynman. You could institute voting, as uh, we did, uh, well, the U.S. Army did, and power-sharing agreements, but without an equitable means of financing and provisioning, it didn't matter how much shifting of leaders occurred. The system failed. Likewise, although a majority of people in the U.S. and abroad see Donald Trump as a threat to American democracy and governance, the threats were four decades in the making, with the increasing inequity of the tax base, the devaluing of labor, the lack of infrastructure and public goods funding, the market fundamentalism, and this is back to a quote, the market fundamentalism that was ushered in by President Reagan, Fed Chair Greenspan, and Prime Minister Thatcher during the 80s encouraged people to pursue financial self-interest, with no restraint or regulation, cutting taxes on wealthy and starving government undermines democracy, says Feynman. Like modern democracies, good governments have always been fragile and hard to maintain. Across time, neither monarchies nor democracies guaranteed good governance nor excluded its possibility. Rather, the main causal factor was the way that governments was fiscally funded. Above all, the authors of this article emphasize that politics and economics cannot be decoupled in understanding government quality. Nor can we access by ideology alone. Hmm. 
our argument is that our ideology is based on understanding economics. Rather, we must look at the practice of governance and how it affects people. Functioning bureaucracy and broad-based equitable taxation are not stumbling blocks of good governance, as many on both the left and the right have argued. <laughs> Rather, as our historical analysis illustrates, they are key legs of the stool. And then he quotes uh, FDR, you know, and how fighting inequality is kind of really important. And monopolization of resources required to fund government may render political equality unsustainable. Duh. So, um, what do you make of all that? I think it's a lot of words to say, hey, society is better when the people are supported. Mm. And it's like, when you, you don't support the people, that's when things start to crumble. Like That's, that's kind of the gist I, I get from it. And it's like, wow, who would have thought, you know? Or it's quite not just questions of like, does a government govern or how much should a government govern? It's how it governs. Because all governments govern. Like that's, like yeah. you can't, like a government that doesn't govern can't exist. That government like needs to govern in order to exist. That and, if the government yeah. and even stops a, governing, it ceases to be a government. And even a tribe has a government. It's just in the form of like council leadership and your spiritual leader. That's still a government. And, even, and it still has a structure a commune, and rules. Even a commune would have some sort of government. There would be some sort of decision-making process. It wouldn't just be everyone running around doing whatever they wanted. There's always going to be some sort of structure, no matter what system. The question is, how do we execute? Yeah, we execute it with... How do we do it? Like institutions like direct democracy and recallable right. delegates. These, you know, meet those, that, that list of to-dos. So the next article, which is related to taxation and wealth and tying wealth and tying taxation to property, um, is a place from CAS, which is the steady Center for Advancement of Steady State Economics. Now, these guys have probably a mixed reputation. They're a Washington type of think tank. And, well, okay, well, let, let, let me start with this. So, one of the bread tubers, left tubers, non-compete, he had, like, a stream that was devoted to bashing the uh, the word degrowth. And I've used degrowth many times during this program. And I was taken aback by their conversation about how degrowth is a neoliberal project. And it's just another, like, neoliberal buzzword. Um, because they were... Their conclusion was that degrowth is just a new version of austerity. Degrowth meaning that we we have a very wasteful economy that's measured by how much economic activity there is, uh, not only profit making, but how much is wasted as much as like how much is actually made, sold, and used. And so it's more of a shifting of whole priorities. And this is seen so. But one of the things. On this, um, I'll start with their, their policy list here, their top 15. I'm going to read some of them. And there's some things that, like, make raise wet red flags because number three 
is the phrase stabilized population, right? Now, the word control is not there, but it makes people think of population control and mass abortion and, and whatever, and stabilized population, which means a lot of things. Because they're basically starting from a position that, well, our economy is unsustainable, it's unecological, this is where I like them because they talk in terms of ecology, not socialism and social ecology, but just ecology. So they're just starting from an ecological lens of wasteful economy. How do we make it not wasteful? And maybe still, like, maybe it's still capitalist. They're not anti-capitalist in spirit, but a lot of their policies are post-capitalist or, or at least um, inclusive to um, leftist policy. For example, they have a they have a an, an act called the Full and Sustainable Employment Act. So it's like they're for full employment po uh, policy. Uh, maintain network of conservation areas sufficient in size and diversity to ensure long-term provision of vital ecosystem services. Uh, employ cap auction trade systems for allocating basic resources. Now I'm not really for the auction area of it. Should be based on need, right? But who needs more? Equitably redistribute auction payments through public trusts. Establish a more flexible working day, week, and year to provide more opportunities for people to decide how to use their own time and alleviate unemployment pressures. I'm oh, no, sorry, employment pressures. Overhaul banking regulations, starting with gradual elimination of fractional reserve banking, such that the monetary system moves away from debt structures that require continuous economic growth, meaning profit accumulation. I think that's pretty anti-capitalist. And, uh, and and a bunch of other policies. So that's kind of where I'm like, I don't view these guys as neoliberal bad guys. Um, maybe they're funded by some liberal billion, uh, liberal rich people, but they're thinking ecologically first, but not like I'm going to be taxed more. I mean, if we cut the military, we don't have to really tax more. But anyway, uh, the actual article that I'm going to read from them by one of their writers, Brian Sheck. It's called Paying Taxes with Tofik Money, Watch Out for Environmental Backfires. I didn't set out to coin a phrase, but Tofik Money will be far handier. Oh, yes, yeah, so I'm reading this because he kind of goes he kind of goes through some concepts that I feel are useful and interesting. So the first one is Tofik Money. What is the hell is that? Uh, it will be far handier than the phrase money derived pertinent to the Tofik theory of money. And so what is the Tofik theory of money? Uh, it's that money originates via the agricultural surplus that frees the hands for the division of labor in the first place. Mostly meaning manufacturing and services. It's a theory of money that reflects not only the topic structure of the economy, that it's based on you know food, making food, um, with manufacturing and services built upon a pace of extraction. But the fact that money is meaningless, you know, extraction from nature, but the fact that money is meaningless unless we have an agricultural surplus at the base. So no food surplus, no agricultural surplus, you know, no mining surplus, no money. This explains why money originated in regions equally known for its origins in agriculture and a predictable food supply. You know, river, valley, civilizations. It also explains why some of the first records of environmental deterioration come from the same regions. The reason, then, for referring to topic money is to keep in mind that topic structure, the fact, uh, like a pyramid, the fact that truly generating money and value entails an ecological footprint. In fact, corollary number one 
of this theory of money is that the quantity of money and the GDP indicates the amount of agricultural surplus and related activity at the base of the economy and little else. Uh, other related activity includes any extractive activity like logging, mining, and fishing. So let's break that down into kind of two little um, pyramids. The economy of nature, you know, start with producers, plants, then there's kind of herbivores, and then carnivores on top, or herbivores. Then the human economy, you start with extraction, agriculture, then there's heavy manufacturing, and then light manufacturing. In other words, GDP is a solid indicator of environmental impact because as a measure of topic money spent, it's the measure of our foot, um, of our extractive footprint. Using the phrase topic money is sustainably writing analog to using the phrase a fiat money in economic justice writing. At this point in history, and um, that's because uh, fiat money is like money that's just derives its value from the authority making it. Especially in the narrow sense that legal tender is no longer backed by gold, the objective fiat then is hardly essential. Yet many authors favor the phrase fiat money in order to drive home the point that bankers have an unfair advantage over everyone else. The adjective topic trumps the word fiat, uh, the use of fiat in a salient sense that all money is and must be based on this surplus. No money originates in the absence of any surplus, and no money retains value in such an absence. You following this? I'm following. Okay, good. A primer of the <laughs> primer in taxation. Taxes are commonly used to incentivize or more. And so this is a particular point of view on taxation. It's, deb it's all debatable, I guess. Taxes are commonly used to incentivize or more directly de-incentivize certain behaviors that society has come to recognize as undesirable and seemingly unsafe. Although we just kind of talked about how taxation's main point is to raise funds for public uh, or common goods. Um, like now that's a, that, that is a very specific philosophy on taxation. Yeah. Yeah. That's just for incentivizing and de-incentivizing. I think more that there's a philosophy that like, this is what taxation can be used for. And this is also the use that everyone doesn't like because it, or, yeah, it's a libertarian saying, I don't like that my behavior is being corrected by this oppressive tax system. That's violation of my freedom. Yeah. And this is the allure of the more kind of flat taxation or the taxation just on the on just exchanging and on just economic activity across the board, not uh, and just at least have a neutral, equitable taxation system, which is kind of what we were talking about instead of one that picks and chooses based on who's in power when a tax is passed. Yeah. Uh, in the hands of, but it's, again, it's still a political choice. Sales taxes hit the poor more than the rich, and so do a you know, host of other ones. Property owners hit the old because they want to live in place, but um, they don't have an income anymore, or they don't have enough of an income to pay them. In the hands of, because that's the thing, property taxes are based on this, like, oh, if you have land, then you must be extracting value from that land. But if you just have enough yeah. land for a house and maybe yeah, a, if a you garden, have, you can't yeah, extract you value from enough, that. Right. You're not, if you're not being extractive with your land and you're just living on it to survive, then the tax code is basically like, well, then you're being an idiot. 
if you're just trying to be happy and live a life and be fulfilled, you're being an idiot for not uh, exploiting anyone with that land. You have perfectly good exploitative land that you can exploit people with. Exactly. Uh, and that's why either you have to move land that you're not exploiting into like a nature preserve, public trust, something that uh, isn't going to be get public uh, property tax. But what that has led to is like say in the city of Albany, uh, which is also it's mostly a lot of state land, but forty uh, percent of the city of Albany is untaxed because so much of it is not extractive. It's services, it's public goods, it's state offices. So none of it is extractive or exploitative of labor. And uh, and we'll hit back on those that phrase again later in the second hour. So let's wrap this up. Um, There's a bit more. So uh, in the hands of liberal politicians, as conservatives love to lament, the line becomes blurry between disincentivizing bad behavior and generating money for pet projects. Yet liberals often defend certain taxes, especially on the rich, on the grounds that they will actually spur GDP growth. So everyone's wrong at the end of the day. Uh, Liquor sales might contribute to GDP, but an alcoholic public is unproductive. Therefore, the argument goes, because that's, cause that's, what, that's what causes alcoholism, which is not the case. I mean, that is what Tsarist Russia did, that they had a monopoly on alcohol production. And so the Tsars just kept the populace permanently drunk to keep them from revolting. And mm-hmm. then once the populace sobered up enough, they're like, oh, shoot, Lenin's here. All right, we can do a revolution now. <laughs> well, not that simple, but yeah, sure. Therefore, the argument goes that we should tax alcohol not only to protect the health of drinkers and the lives of innocents, like drivers or pedestrians, but also to grow the economy faster. Explanation uh, point. If you're a steady-state liberal, you're probably of the former and certainly not for the latter. So here's the thing about, like, steady-state economics is that it kind of, as a think tank, you know, it kind of builds itself as being nonpartisan in that, like, there's liberal ones, there's conservative steady staters. It's like because ecology and environmentalism and conservation is something that everyone can care about, regardless of where your original political philosophy comes from. But how you kind of think about the issues of taxation and how we get to a, state, a stable economy. Because a stable economy is one that's really not like accelerating in its growth. Um, but there's a kind of. Capitalism is yeah. unable to have a quote unquote stable economy that it's there's just constant boom and bust cycles and there needs to be constant acceleration constant growth that having stable having steady non-growth non-declining i don't think capitalism's equipped to deal with that now there are leftists online uh like i mentioned non-compete that kind of like they, they they're thinking is starts with a kind of like we're gro- we need to grow the pie no matter what, and that means we still need economic growth because like I, I think I got into it when um I mentioned degrowth in some kind of Facebook conversation and I got hammered a bit by a bit by those that are like how dare you suggest that the third world can't develop and I'm like well I'm talking about the imperial core actually um not Africa. So, if anything, degrowing America means redistributing to the poor of the world and allowing them and giving them the means to develop 
It's also about means of production, right? The means of production are for infinite growth, not maximizing happiness in the Mills right. way. That's also why, like, a kind of um, people who, like, go back and forth on utilitarian ethics, where on, on the one hand, they'll say, like, we just want to maximize happiness. And at the same, oh, yeah, no, no, it was this guy who was, like, trying to debate the gay out of a uh, Twitch streamer. And he kept referring to utilitarian ethics of, like, look, more gay people get diseases and kill themselves, so obviously uh, they should be less gay. And it's like, I'm trying to maximize happiness here. Like, <laughs> that's one, that's definitely an argument. But if you actually want to maximize happiness, then it should be about not oppressing and, and giving people the ability to counter disease and whatever. Yeah, it's but. to say, hey, the fact that that happens to gay people is bad. So instead of the response being, let's not have gay people so it doesn't happen to them, the response is, let's stop doing this to gay people and let them be happy. Um, or it's the vagueness of what vax maximizes yeah, yeah, yeah. happiness. Bingo. Because, like, I'm like, wait, do you mean, like, are you utilitarian in Mill's way or Rawls? <laughs> okay. So when it comes to the environment, things get a little more complicated. Environmental problems such as pollution and habitat loss are considered negative externalities. We are still, just a reminder, we're in a six max extinction right now. And that's kind of the thing that's, like, crap on your little, pro you know, identity problems. Uh, no one pays the cost of pollution in the market. Rather, we all pay, often with our health, outside of or external to the market. The costs are diffused, in other words, among the general public, while the polluter accrues all the financial benefits of doing so. Taxes are often prescribed to then internalize the cost of pollution. A tax on carbon is the most prominent example. It's also one that actually gets around in liberal circles, and they'll push it, and then, of course, it becomes the next, like, a big culture war fight in the congress uh yeah. the thing that democrats and republicans fight over when it's like well is the carbon tax really the right thing anyway so environmental taxes help to rectify the injustice of because this article at the end of the day is arguing kind of against a carbon tax um or environmental taxes altogether um but let's i think he does conclude with something a little more positive or we can talk about what we would do instead Environmental taxes help to rectify the injustice of polluters profiting at the expense of the public. In a nation providing it, priding itself in this maintenance of justice, you might expect to see environmental taxes pass left and right, but they're not. However, because of a systemic political challenge, the benefits of polluting are concentrated while the costs are diffused. Not only that, furthermore, in the cases of pollution, it's not all evident how bad the problem is. Hardly anyone knew about the ravages of Organochlorines, like DDT, until scientists at Wisconsin somewhat luckily stumbled upon it as a culprit for uh, for the nearly extinct bald eagle or the green falcon and other um, bird icons. Similarly today, how many of us have even heard of endocrine disruptors? Many you have, thanks to scientists such as the late Theo Coburn, founder of TEDx, but can you spot one in your environment? Can you feel what a lot of them are doing to our nervous systems? Can you diagnose your problem and trace the source all the way back to some polluter? Of course not. Frankly, 
It takes a whale of an education these days just to keep abreast of chemical threats. Who's got the time and money for that? Well, the rich do. It all sounds really unfair, doesn't it? The fate of posterity might just rest in the hands of highly educated, sincerely motivated little guys and gals who assemble for purposes of constructing class action lawsuits and lobbying for environmental taxes. Liberal democracy at work. Uh, so inadequate. So into the teeth of the topic conundrum. Alas, even if we succeed in passing a very broad sweep in environmental taxes, we still have a problem. What if those corporations are so driven by revenue, because uh, they are, uh, that they decide to actually pay all of those taxes entailed by their polluting activities? In other words, they are not disincentivized by such activities, but rather incentivized into more such activity simply to pay the taxes without losing any net revenue. So, of course, they'll be paying the taxes in topic money, as all taxes are, because all money is topic, or tropic. Sensing the problem here? Because of the economic base, it's still based on extraction and exploitation. So now let's consider a less obvious challenge. Let's say those corporations are indeed disincentivized. So you can see where maybe why I read this, that like he's describing the problem with environmental taxes, because, oh, at the base of it, firms are not democratically controlled, the means of production are not uh, run by the public or communities. They're run for extraction and exploitation. Income, of course, is tropic money. Though the ecologically clouded lens of a neoclassical economics, with no understanding of tropics, the scenario could be considered a win-win. We lessen a pollution problem without impacting profits, and we generated public finance. Yet through the lens of, and this is where neoliberals are just monsters, because it's like, what are, you, what are you complaining about? Everything's great. The policy's working as intended. Yeah, but the, the ecology's still being destroyed. <laughs> you haven't done anything about climate change. So we've robbed Peter to pay Paul in this case. Peter is a polluting industry, uh, which ended up maintaining its profits and growth, and it took a lot of effort, reinvestment, and probably a little luck. Paul is the government, which is now has a bigger coffer for expenditure, also known as consumption. So Paul has more tropic money now, while Peter has about the same. The net effect is GDP growth, and that is more environmental impact. So why did we probably end up polluting just as much? Because the corporation had to conduct other types of activity to compensate for its loss from its original activity. You know, it pays taxes, so then it reinvests in other extractive stuff. We've talked about this with um, vegan meat and whatever. So, for example, the corporation isn't pumping out as many PCBs, but now it's emitting more greenhouse gases, right? It just shifts the harm somewhere else. More importantly, for our purposes, neither Peter nor Paul, meaning capital or government, can be considered in isolation of its broader economy, its tax code. For the economy at large, Peter is essentially the entire supply side, agricultural, extractive, and it's all bundled up in their respective tropic levels. Paul's government aggregate, a major contributor to GDP. The tax code is replete with environmental taxes that actually stimulate the capitalist state complex into more you know, state capitalist complex into more economic activity, GDP growth in other words. We wind up with less biodiversity, more congestion, higher levels of stress, more alienation. We wind up closer to limits of growth. In other words, it's a tropic conundrum. Living environmental taxes leads to the environmental impact incurred in the process of generating the money to pay the taxes. You know, it's a circular 
reasoning. I'm not saying environmental taxes are always and everywhere a bad idea. If they lead to a substantial reduction of a carcinogen, for example, that speaks for itself. Clearly, however, the tropic theory of money poses a challenge for economics or economists to develop some ecological rigor in assessing the marginal benefits of them. Perhaps some taxes will not only disincentivize particular polluting, but also tap some brakes on GDP. That would be a steady-state fiscal policy, but it's up to economics, ecologists, and fusion of the two to identify the conditions under which tax may serve for brake-tapping purposes. We can wish it weren't true, but all money is tropic money. In lay terms, you can't buy your way out of environmental impact and limits to growth. You might be able to tax your way closer to a steady-state economy, though. So that's kind of like a mixed ending, mostly because I kind of would point out that well, I would say that the tropic theory is part of the broader truth of where value comes from, right? We have the labor theory of value. This is the right. – it, it had a name back in the Enlightenment era, like psychophysiocracy, that all wealth is based on, well, owning land and extracting value from it. Um, but, of course uh... – you can't, Instead of it being a labor theory of value, it's a land-based theory of value. Bingo. Does, huh. That, that do, it does make sense why that would be a dominant theory of value during, say, the feudal times where it's the lord that has um, control over the land, and the land is the primary means of production. That uh, industry yeah. hadn't developed yet, and that most of production was food production, which took place by labor on the land. But something happened in the uh, 15th century. Half a population died because uh, oh, yeah. instead of uh, shutting down the economy and uh, resting in place, they, uh, the church did the opposite. They actually marched people from town to town to pray the, the plague away. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Here, let's spread the virus as much as we can. That's definitely the best thing to do. You know, in very large processions, you know, they would process from town to town and collect people who were sick or people who were <laughs> afraid of being oh, sick. Okay. So, yeah, so uh, half the population died and thus the the oh, labor pool life. changed. And so then over centuries, it became needed that, the oh, no, the like you can have the land, but if you don't have the labor, you can't extract the value. So new ideas about labor come into play so it's interesting that this think tank here kind of talks like like a like a um, pre-labor movement economist but again that's kind of what some liberals do is that they kind of ignore well marxism for one thing um and kind of just focus on their area which is like talking about ecology and the need for actually having a balanced economy that doesn't doesn't really need or at least takes out of the ecology as much as it gives back. And as much as many think tanks or liberal institutions want to, like, say, we don't have to get rid of capitalism to do that, I think <laughs> our, our, our point of view is that we kind of do need to disassemble or challenge capitalism as it is um, to, to actually get there, um, to have that sustainable sustainability because otherwise we're just putting window dressing in
the second hour of the three laps. I just want to take a moment to do the call sign. This is WCAALP in Albany, 107.3. You're listening to Albany Community Radio. I have a voice in Albany is the motto. So we are back to talking about property. Um, now that we talked about taxes and government, government, my taxes from my roads. I want my roads. Mm-hmm. But they have to be funded privately by private institutions because if the government makes roads, that's actually tyranny. You don't understand. Government making roads is tyranny. Now that is a unfair straw man right there. Okay, that's that's not 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 cool. Okay, there was um there is more left libertarian and libertarian party stuff, but I'm gonna save well, I that. I consider myself to be a left libertarian. I just like yeah poking. Fun a oh yeah, of course, of course. No, I'm just saying the um, I have I have little stories and posts uh, from Facebook and stuff referring to of the coupling of um, left and right libertarians and the kind of conversations they have. Like I um, oh yeah, like oh yeah, and uh, and left unity slash bottom unity um stuff. So that's I'm saving that for like the next like culture war episode. But, like, I wanted to point out that I watched, we'll probably forget by the next time, I listened to, like, a argument slash discussion between, you have this, you have this ANCAP, a uh, black one, and these are two black guys. So, a black ANCAP and a black uh, left libertarian is, it was in the, it was in the left libertarian caucus in the libertarian party. Um, and... 
And he just kind of goes on this guy's channel to say, like, hey, can you lay off a left libertarian? You kind of bash us a lot. We're on the same team. We're trying to do bottom unity here. And he's like, after uh, – I'm, par- I'm very much paraphrasing because this is like an hour of back and forth. He's like, if you don't put private property as your number one value, I'm not messing with you. Like, I'm not making friends. I don't – we're not on the same team. You know, it's just like private property first, propertarianism, blah, blah, blah. I found it aggravating. And <laughs> That's definitely a value to have. Yeah. It, it's the abstract concept of owning something in absentee. That's what private property is in the end. That personal property is what you own and interact with, and private property is what you own in absentee and to basically make your whole uh, political engagement be about I want to be able to own things that I'll never be able to see or touch so I can extract resources from the abstract concept of ownership of that thing since that's where that's where income comes from and without income you don't have freedom in a market which is kind of where the whole property equals freedom, property equals livelihood, um, freedom and then happiness. Freedom. Yeah. So, and the whole, oh yeah, and, and the other like side of um, this politics, because I am painting a picture for purpose, the, I just want to be, oh yeah, this is the other thing he kept saying, like, I just want to be left alone. That's what all libertarians have in common, and the, and the other guy kind of agreed, like, we just want to be left alone. I'm like, Why? Why do you want to be left alone? There's like, I think that 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 needs to be explored in some peace circle of like, why do you want to be left alone? Like, I I do not feel this is some inherent human personality trait. It's the the abstract idea of the rugged individual that you're not a real man if you can't go into the woods and survive all on your own accord. And the problem with rugged individualism is that we are a communal, social-based species. that We can't function properly without a support system. And that it is that animal part of your brain that these uh, that rugged individualism clings to. They want to cling to the animal part of the brain. They want to... Well, the lizard, the lizard, the lizard, there's the lizard half, and then there's the mammal half. Um, or the, and then there's the fish part, but that causes hiccups. They, <laughs> the other like um part of that is, oh yeah, that um like you want to be left alone because of our institutions being all tyrannous and uh, unequal, our economics aren't equal, our politics aren't equal. You know, we we don't have a really great democracy right now, um, if at all, because of an unequal taxation, I guess, among other things. But the point is, like, you want to be left alone because your interactions with society in general are through hierarchies and and whatever. And I think kind that of, the idea it's a, it's a reaction to yeah the for the material well, condition. I think it comes from a um, the when uh, you see it, that society has fundamental problems that need fundamental changes. That you have two real options that you can decide to do one of two things Mm -hmm. that you can either run away from the problems, which is the where the I just want to be left alone and the government won't leave me alone. That's running away from the problem. The other the other path is fixing the problems and dealing with them. 
that's saying, I just want to be left alone is running away from those problems and not actually dealing with them. Yeah, that's, that's, that is kind of the two mindsets when, when Kansas canvases or engages with the public, you kind of get those two reactions. Or they're manifested in various ways. So, so this is from a little short little bit, um, kind of a ragging on the end caps, uh, from Jacobin. How did private property start? Now it doesn't answer that question. I actually have a YouTube video that does. Oh, okay. Actually, can you, can you read this one, Mike? Oh, I'm property flummoxed when confronted with this very simple question. There you go. So perhaps the most, all right, perhaps the most interesting thing about libertarian thought is that it has no way of coherently justifying the initial acquisition of property. How does something that was once unowned become owned? This means that libertarian system of thought literally cannot get off the ground. They are stuck at time zero of hypothetical history with no way forward. You don't have to take my word for it. Serious libertarians have more or less conceded this point. Here is Robert Nozick. It would be implausible to view improving an object as giving full ownership to it. If the stock of unowned objects that might be improved is limited, for an object coming under one person's ownership changes the situation of all others. Whereas previous, they were at liberty to use the object. Now that someone else owns it, they no longer have the liberty of the use of that object. That when nothing, when something's owned by no one, it can be used by everyone communally. But as soon as it is owned by one, its use is cut off by everyone else, thus limiting the liberty of everyone else. Here is Matt Zwolinski. If I were to put a fence around a piece of land that had previously been open to all to use, claim it as my own, and announce to all that I will use violence, Violence against any who walk upon it without my consent, it would certainly appear as though I am the one initiating force, or at least the threat of force, against others. I am restricting their liberty to move about as they were once free to do. I am doing so by threatening them with physical violence unless they comply with my demands. And I am doing so not in response to any provocation on their part, but simply so that I might better be able to utilize the resources without their interference. Again, what's so funny about this insight is not just that it seems that it is a persuasive counterpoint to libertarianism, but rather it seems to suggest that libertarian principles themselves might forbid property ownership. Now we're getting into the left libertarianism. Sure. Um, but this is like the big, uh, the good. So like that, the, this is a good reaction to the nap, which is, right libertarians call the non-aggression principle that like the whole we just leave each other alone and when, then we can work together in a market um and trade and whatever but again like yeah if once you set property aside and say it's yours you're depriving others of using it so you must have to enforce that with some type of aggression or or rather even putting down property is a form of aggression okay exactly your signal should be so to be down. sure libertarian philosophers have developed various ways to muddle through this issue Locke famously constrains acquisition by the proviso that there is quote enough 
and as good property left for others. Now, as it goes on to show, Locke's literal proviso is impossible to satisfy and offers a similar constraint that property acquisition not worsen, quote, the position of others where the position is defined in vaguely welfarious terms. Zelensky goes one step further than Nozick even and says the harms of initial property acquisition must be offset with a basic income. Whoa. Talking about a UBI at that point. That's uh, pretty crazy. Well, it, these... yeah, it, it, it shows that, like, to have this private property system as it is today or in the past, it's like you needed welfare to exist. So anyone who kind of says, you, you like, yeah, it's like, that these are in conflict. No, 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 they exist because of each other. Right. So... None of these moves resolve the basic issue that property acquisition violates the liberty of others. They just try to compensate for it in some way. Like if an initial acquisition version of eminent domain. That's fine as far as things go, I suppose, but it tends to suffer from the problem that most libertarians are quite opposed to the kinds of ongoing transfers implied by these compensation schemes. So Kaplan whiffs in her debate at LibertyCon, Elizabeth Grunig asked Brian Kaplan how unowned property becomes owned. He struggled with the question in the debate, but his eventual answer, which is now more eloquently elaborated at his website, relies on half-baked intuition pumps, uh, quote, folk morality, as he calls it elsewhere. There are many clear-cut cases of righteous acquisition. Once we understand them, we can use them to analyze fuzzier cases. What are some clear-cut cases? An individual living alone on an island grows some food, builds a house, carves a sculpture, quarries some rock. Always one person on an island. Jesus Christ. If someone else shows up on the island, the new arrival seems morally obligated to uh, respect that property. This isn't just seems to me or seems to libertarian. It seems to almost everyone other than self-conscious socialist philosophers. Other clear-cut cases, if two people mutually agree to pull their resources and effort and split the rewards according to an explicit formula, whereas 50-50, 90-10 or whatever, or I pay you 10 pounds of food to build me a new hut. No, I want to stop you there. I want to point out, like, even in the Pacific, where you have all these islands that got colonized, right, by people who settled on them, they did so in groups. It was never one person, right? You know, right. in in uh, Pacific island cultures, it's like it, they're tribes. They moved in tribes, Moana style, you know, big boats. So this whole like always using, always falling back on this folk, like this is how things develop. This is folk morality. Like you just imagine things as one person on an island. Like castaway, but see, castaway is the opposite of an equitable like situation. <laughs> yeah. So there are two issues here: one narrowly related to the case he selects, and another more broadly related to the method he selects. The problem with the case is that by clearing out all the other people from an island, it eliminates the liberty destruction that makes pri- property acquisition so obviously problematic. What if instead one individual washed up on an island, ten, uh, ten of them do? 
Then one of them asserts that certain resources and land are his and that those who do not respect that claim will be violently attacked. This is more analogous to a real-life case of property acquisition where there exists more than a single human being. It also clearly presents the problem of property acquisition rather than trying to get around it by creating a hypothetical society of one. The problem with this method is that the general folk morality of people when taken as a whole, is not libertarian. Any assessment of how people generally feel about things in an economic realm would not generate the conclusion that they generally feel like laissez-faire capitalism is correct. We know this because no society ever selects those institutions, and because libertarians write books all the time about how democracy is bad, precisely because people as a whole are not sympathetic to the libertarian worldview. An honest assessment of where folk morality is on economics will probably be something like people have somewhat contradictory ideas about economic morality that roughly sum to the worldview that there should be property rights, but also those rights should give way to fairness and welfare goals to some degree. I'm not saying I agree with that general worldview or even that you should build your normative views this way, but if you were going to say the proper normative method as is folk morality, as Kaplan does, then it seems like you should actually take a comprehensive account of what folk morality is, not just opportunistically pick off one piece of it. So I did get, I did find that video. So here's a video, it's made by a Dave. Also, I'm playing this because that last article didn't answer the question of what the origin of property was. It just kind of poked holes in a bright libertarian. Hello there. In this video series, I'll be explaining what property is, where it comes from historically, and why it's impossible. If you want to read a book that's about over a hundred years old, I'll put a link in the description to Proudhon's book. But the videos I have here will be to explain the ideas with more modern words, so it's more understandable. So first of all, I should define property. Property is claiming ownership of land, buildings, factories, workshops, and other means of production. Most anarchists make the distinction between private property and personal property. According to most anarchists, Private property is what I mentioned before, land and means of production. Personal property is your home, your toothbrush, your computer, your clothing and such. I'll not make that distinction. Basically, I would say that the word property has become perverted and the meaning of property and possession has become fused together. What they call personal property is what I would call a possession. That's something you possess, that means you have it, you use it, and you can in most cases take it with you to the grave. Part 2. Property as a natural right. Property is seen as a human right today. The right to property can be seen as the rights of man. In Article 2 it says, the goal of any political association is the conservation of the natural and imprescriptible rights of man. These rights are liberty, property, safety and resistance against oppression. In Article 17 it says, 
property being an inviolable and sacred right no one can be deprived of private usage if it's not when the public necessity legally noted evidently requires it and under the condition of a just and prior indemnity. As we see here, political associations have to ensure property rights and also that you are not allowed to take private property since it's sacred. But then it says that you can take property if it's of public necessity. This is some kind of logical fallacy, but then again, it's an exemption to a rule. But this is not a rule, it's a right. And it's supposed to be an inviolable and sacred right. So if rights are universal, then how come you're allowed to break them? It is the same as Article 10. No one may be disturbed for his opinions, even religious ones, provided that their manifestation does not trouble the public order established by the law. This means you can have any opinion, but you can't have any opinion that troubles the public order established by the law. This means that if you have an arbitrary lawmaker, any opinion can be deemed to trouble the public. This has been abused to persecute religious minorities and also political radicals. Part 3. The Origins of Property and property in the tribal ages. So I'll start with the, the tribal ages and move forward in time until the modern times. In Western society, in the tribal ages, there was no concept of property. It was first seen during Roman conquest, where Romans would designate areas to different commanders and soldiers to be property where they could have slaves working in their estates. In the tribal areas, there were different structures of hierarchy. And I will not go into tribal structure in this video, but I will talk about property in tribes. Mostly, everything was commonwealth. This means that everyone owned everything. Most commonly, people were buried with what was seen as offerings or possessions. Mostly, this was clothing, jewelry and weaponry. Housing was different in most tribal societies, but mostly there were common houses and different sorts of buildings where people lived. This means there was no such concept of property along tribals, but there were wars. What was taken from other tribes during wars was usually spoils of war which were distributed between the looting tribe. Here is where wives come from, since women from others were captured and slaves were also taken from other tribes. So the only sense of property in tribal times have been slavery. Part 4 property in feudal times. In the bottom of the feudal pyramid you had slaves. Slaves were owned by others who could do with them what they wanted. They were property. Serfs in areas 
were also property and needed permission from the local lords to even leave the area they lived in. Mostly, they did not decide who they married and where they lived. You should read up on serfdom. A lot of it ended after the Black Death, but in some places it went on to the 1900s. Under feudalism, everything in the given areas was owned by the lords, except for in the cities. In the cities, you had the burghers or bourgeois. You also had freemen during feudalism. These were people who were not serfs, but the general population was under serfdom. During feudalism, property could be owned and sold, and the right of property was enforced with military might and violence. Back then, there was no police. Under feudalism, people did not use currency mostly, and there was little bartering. Mostly common folk had their societal roles and fulfilled them, which meant that there was little trade. But in the cities, there were currency and markets. Mostly they used silver or gold as currency, or other coins minted. With money, you got the gentry, who owned houses, and with inheritance, they could rent out spaces for free people who were laborers. Different countries had different situations. In England, feudalism ended after the Black Death and the Peasant Revolt. Here they started parliamentarism. As nobles started wanting more commodities from the burghers or bourgeois or gentry, they had to accumulate more currency. And after the plague, in most places in the Western world, the serfs demanded payment for work, because otherwise they could just leave and get paid for work. Workers became scarce, and therefore they could demand more. But after a while, things returned back to the same order, and a lot of revolts were suppressed. Some Scandinavian countries had a feudal society until the 1800s. Just note that it's different from country to country. Suddenly, people started having ideas of another society. They wanted rights. You can argue forever about their origins from Roman republics or whatever, and please correct me if I'm wrong about anything here. In Holland, they revolted against Spain because of high taxes and religious persecution. They created a republic. That republic won against Spain. And we had the glorious revolution in England after that. And then we had the Bill of Rights. Then the Americans made a revolution. And after the French supported the Americans, they bankrupted themselves. And then the French revolted. And this created a liberalist society that most Western countries have. Part 5. Capitalist Societies First of all, note that uh, it didn't happen at the same time in all countries. In some countries it happened in the 1850s, some countries it happened early in the 1800s, and some countries it was in the 1900s. All people in many nations got the same given rights. What happened was that people basically all became freemen, and serfdom was banned. This made people angry about wage slavery, because the former lords now just did like the other gentry. Gentry is the rank of free people who owned property. 
They took rent for their houses and then paid the farmers. In some areas, they distributed land from nobles. But even from the beginning, this has been unequal. Wage slavery is the situation that began after the end of serfdom, that you're bound to work for someone else to be able to survive. To get food, you can't grow food unless you pay rent for the fields. To get food, you can't just take fruits from trees without buying the fruits from the owner. You must get wages to be able to survive. But what gives the person the right to the land in the first place? The only justification is conquest by force, a conquest by forefathers or ancestors. Which means that violence is the only true justification for that property. Now with unequal footings for wealth, this meant the common folk still had nothing, but they instead of having the former feudalist structure, now had a new structure. Now the most oppressing group of people are not lords, but they're burghers or capitalists or bourgeois or gentry. They only make a living out of owning property, whereas the owner of the product of the workers is not their maker, it's owned by the capitalists. This means that the worker does not make a product that they sell. They sell themselves. And what choice do you have to not work like that? Most people during early capitalism did not own anything. They rented everything. They had even less property to call their own than someone living in a tribe. It is the same today. Most people have debt, which forces us to work, and most people do not own property. Most people rent, and the ones who own homes are mostly in debt. And usually, when the mortgage is paid, if you survive that long, you will go on your pension, sell the home, and live off whatever you have left. This means that most people still don't have any property. This means that capitalism and the liberal system does not create opportunities for everyone. Instead, it has maintained the status quo where the only improvements in society have been social rights, commodities and technological improvements. Okay, so um, one thing I wanted to put a, add another historical tidbit to that video was it, it mentioned the um, Dutch revolt against Spain uh, or the Netherlands. And one of the things that kind of made them a bit more different, you know, forming a republic and then having a mercantile empire is because through land reclamation, you know, um, building the dikes and, um, and uh, spinning windmills to, to pump water out of land, uh, when, it, when land was reclaimed, it wasn't owned by anyone except those that created it. So you actually had like a lot of proportion of the land in Holland was owned by peasants. And that's kind of how you had that base for republicanism uh, and, and revolt, uh, that it wasn't controlled by yeah. feudal lords completely. I hadn't even thought of that, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, who owns yeah. reclaimed land? Now, this is also interesting in that, well, and also how, like, uh, the land uh, between the tides is recognized as being ownerless. 
what's interesting about that in the history of Holland is that, like, because, like, a lot of the land was flooded, or at least some of it was flooded, because in the Middle Ages, the main power source was uh, peat from the bogs, which is very carbon-rich, and it burns a lot better than other wood. And they would burn the peat moss, and that kind of, a lot of uh, Holland's industry was richer because they had this extractive energy source that others did not have. It was burned better than wood, and, and you didn't have access to coal yet. So, but it's also, a, they, they mine so much of it out of the ground that uh, they, they've created these floodplains. But maybe one caused the other, and then they, had, then they had to reclaim the land, and that created the peasant wealth. So it's interesting enough. So um, I don't know if you watched that. I put it in the Discord channel. Um, but otherwise, I, I, I didn't, okay. I watched like a bit of it, but not well, really. considering he's just summarizing Perdone that you said you read at the beginning of the, yeah. then you, you already know what the content was. So for the rest of the hour, um, we're going to read a piece from called, uh, well, the, the site is called the new hegemony and it's basically the blog of a Charles Rupert a democratic libertarian socialist, which is kind of what we are. Uh, one of the many terms, the labels we can put ourselves. So, um, but this one is, so like we've, we've come at property from, uh, now we've created, uh, we've, we covered historical context. We've covered ecological thinking about it, um, land, labor. Well, now, now we're going to talk about the labor. We're going to pro and let's bring in some Marx. I like being a Marxist first and foremost. And that just means, like, and, and because, like, you don't have to read Marx the man himself. Like, there are Marxist thinkers today and in the mid-century as well that are, like, a lot closer to where we are. So if you want Marxism that's more engaging or, like, this has to do with our world and not just talking about yards of linen, <laughs> which is a joke about Marx's writing style. Um, there, there's better stuff. You know, David Harvey and there's all these other Marxists. And, and My biggest recommendation is richard wolf yeah sure i think he's a marxist probably the uh best contemporary market socialist that we have and he does seem like much more of a market socialist than a a state socialist talking about yes how uh cooperative worker control over the means of production as being socialism and not government doing stuff being socialism so this is a longer read, but let's see how much we can get through. Uh, there'll be parts, I'll be skipping a part where he gets into the weeds of Marx. It's called The Libertarian Socialist Conception of Private Property. He, goes, he has some pretty good concepts here. The left has been suspicious of private property since Proudhon brazenly declared it to be nothing more than theft in 1840. His friend, Karl Marx, saw it as the root of capitalism's exploitation, a superfluous invention of the bourgeoisie that would, have dis that would be dispensed with in the future. Anarchists generally see it as an agent of control. Even the most sympathetic socialists treat private property as a necessary evil. Those on the left who refuse to denounce it are all too quickly labeled as faux socialists, unwitting capitalist apologists, or even a disingenuous counter-revolutionary agent. This another neoliberal. On the right, though, private property rights are often so strongly enforced that they trump even the right to life, liberty, and happiness. Such a strong defense of private property is ironic precisely because the justification for property is based in life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, especially the right to life. These background rights perform the justificatory work of private property rights. 
you know, it's the right before other rights. I want to engage this conversation from a third direction, though. I want to begin with, from a neutral one, a position, neither assured of private property's virtue nor its defamation. To start, I think we need a tight definition of what it is. So the next few paragraphs are like him teasing that out. So we need to explain the fact that independent societies throughout history have enlightened to the, on the idea of private property. What particular problem did property solve? Oh, he's saying that many different societies have had it or do have it. So what problem does it solve? Then can it be justified to the satisfaction of socialism? To avoid suspense, I'll sum my conclusions now. First is that private property is no different from the personal. Two, so that that you know fusion of the two terms is, is actually kind of justified. The second is that private property is common to many cultures because it solves the problem of how to divvy up the commons. Three, private property can be justified for socialists when it is based on the background to the right of life and happiness, or utilitarian ethics at the very least. There is in the leftist tradition an important metaphysical division of the concept of property. The first is largely implicit in Marx, a split between the productive and the consumable. Marx paid very little attention to the latter, as he mentions them, if he mentions them at all. Uh, he, like other great economists of his day, focused most exclusively on the means of production. Productive property where you, the, were the things that you need to produce, the consumables, thus making them more important, including raw materials, you know, what's extracted. When Marx speaks of abolishing private property in any above quote, he intends only the productive kind. He is also quick to uh, defend the productive property of the petty artisan and of the small peasant, saying, quoting him, there is no need to abolish that. The development of industry has, to a great extent, already destroyed it or is still destroying it daily. You know, the plight of the small business owner. Marx is saying there is no need to abolish the camera of the photographer or the laptop of the freelance writer. So he means only the large-scale productive property. Factories, great machines, other types of great capital that require, you know, 50 grand at least. The consumable property goes by the name of personal, while the large-scale private. This division saves the left from the accusation that communism or socialism removes the right to use your toothbrush. In other words, you have to share your toothbrush with other people. This argument is derived to reduce socialism to an absurdity. If you wouldn't want to share your toothbrush, you couldn't share food or water or air. So it does make a compelling argument against a socialism that it must resolve, maybe. The division of property into personal private is the traditional solution. It's the one that we have been using. However, the division of property introduces its own problems. The most important, though, uh, and the only one I will treat here is they're, they're not... They're very hard to, in, uh, to distinguish. We can see the crack in precisely where Marx claimed that there is no need to take any private property uh, from the individual proprietor. Here, Marx is admitting that the tools of the individual crafter should belong to the individual crafter. The productive powers are thus not sufficient reason. And, and, and in our current market economy, you know, even an individual proprietor needs to incorporate a business. You know, maybe you're not creating an LLC but you're still like, this is my laptop that I use is my business. And the common understanding is that it is then only those tools that require social operation that must be socialized. So an argument about types of property must be socialized irrespective of how it's used 
for the simple reason that Marx did not make this argument. Uh, meaning that, um, okay, so productive property that you have to use it in a group. You know, big printing press can't really be managed by one person. That, so social ownership applies to productive tools that you need to use in a group. The problem with the argument that only social operations must be socialized is that even socially operated machinery is individually exclusive as it is used. To make this concrete, imagine an assembly line of 10 persons. Each person has a specific spot on the line and performs you know, a separate task. Each spot on that line then may legitimately be conceived as the exclusive property of the individual provider. While such a conception is dangerous, because each individual person, save the first and the last, would be faced with a monopoly on either side of themselves, that is a single provider of materials they need to do their work and a single consumer of the finished product. It is more harmonious to conceive them all as part of a single entity, each cooperating rather than competing. Still, even under the auspices of cooperation, has an exclusive need to be able to use their part of that whole. The right to exclude others from that part is no different from the worker on the assembly line that is for the individual proprietor who Marx exonerated from the abolition of private property. We have then two ways of resolving this inconsistency. Either abolish all private property, including the photographer camera and the writer's laptop, you know, everything's taken out of a library of things, maybe. Or, or as uh, the side of circular economy thing, like everything that you use is rented from the producer. And, uh, yeah, and they have kind of the right to reclaim it, since uh, and that's like a good way of recycling <laughs> and reusing resources. Or we do away with the distinction between personal and private property altogether. As we agreed above, the former is a bit more absurd, or at least seems unfair. So what does this mean? It means that we cannot, as Marx commands, abolish private property. This means that capital and capitalists cannot simply be dispensed with. This is not a vindication of capitalism, of course, as though on the right would like to assert. While getting rid of capitalists is not an option, what is left open to us is the modification of what can and cannot be done with private property. That is precisely what the rights of property owners entails them to do. The rights of private property ownership have their limits. Even the most right-wing libertarian will agree, for example, your right to own a gun and your right to do with your private property as you please cannot be combined to justify any homicide that you might commit. Let's stop there for a moment. This next section then has to do with... So that was all about just kind of breaking down that distinction that we usually make between the personal and the private, um, which doesn't hold kind of to the scrutiny that moderates and right libertarians usually throw back at us that usually kind of gets either muddled or ignored that where does my personal property end when it's part of a larger whole a common when it's in the commonwealth because even when you're in a commune you still have like areas of like i use this desk you know it's my desk like no it's in the house and everything's our house so is it really your desk well yes it's i use it it's my desk you know right but does it is a legal property then i think that's that's where we get into like we can make the distinction between legally private property 
and legally personal property. And then well, the thing that I got really got from Prudon is use-based property. That the thing becomes yours when you use it. So the desk in your house, like it becomes, it's your desk because you're the one that uses it. If it was used by someone else, it's their desk because they're the one that's using it. And that's sort of where how private property isn't private when it's use-based, when it's your personal, you use it daily and it's yours because you use it. That when you stop using it and you're not using it anymore, you, you give up use of it and someone else starts using it, their their claim of ownership over it derives from their use of it. Yeah, but then someone has an emotional attachment and then like some drama plots kind of come from that. And that's yeah. human and that's human experience. So so the next uh, area is actually kind of then revisiting the labor theory of value on what kind of surplus like what let's define private property a little better, right? So he does he, he recognizes it's really muddy. Unfortunately for the bourgeois and Marx alike, the private property right established by Locke he, he uses Locke's justification for private property. I'm gonna skip over that. And Locke's justification, he'll probably kind of mention it again. So established by Locke is not one based solely on labor. Labor identifies which particular things are justified. You know, labor is used. But it does so under the pretense that we are going to use them. Locke himself said that one cannot claim a thing merely to deprive others of its enjoyment. Ultimately, then, it is the need to eat in conjunction with the labor of plucking an apple that justifies my claim, the writer, to the apple, and so the right to exclude the rest of humanity from the apple. Marx misses this, elaborating in capital that the value of commodities, like apples, comes entirely from the labor required to produce them. We may deduce from this that the justification for using commodities, according to Marx, would come entirely from having labored to acquire a thing, either by producing it or trading dead labor for it, the labor being like the labor made to make a rake or the apple picker. Use the consumption element of commodities plays little to no role in Marx, who argued that either goods and services have a use value or they don't. There is no quantifiable degree of use value. Equally, there would be no reasoning for it to use in owning only labor, for Marx's ownership was derived merely from labor and trade. But no one asserts this claim more than, well, liberals. Capitalism, or capitalist claim of ownership, is justified entirely by the idea of labor exchanged for a good. That Marx and capitalism agree so completely on this subject is the greatest tragedy of uh, strategic irony of the post-enlightenment. Locke, as I said, founded the labor theory of property and of value on the unquestionable human need to consume. So that's Locke's idea of property, that it's based on that we need it. We need something to consume it. Um, or we own something so we can consume it, to use it. Labor alone is therefore insufficient to justify ownership of anything, and correspondingly is insufficient to justify the total value of it. We lack the consumptive side, the input of use value. This is where Marx made his most fatal error. He said that use could not be counted on in the final estimation of value. He assumed more than argued that use has no quantifiable value because it is a quality of the things. You know, it's a yes or no question, but that's wrong. 
Use value, it turns out, is quantifiable. And what is more, it is quantifiable in units of labor. I've made the argument for use values before in the previous writing. What is confusing for us is that the labor units of use value are inverted from units of labor in exchange, meaning they act like negative numbers. I'm going to skip this because it's, it's like he's, he's like he's, he's like a math problem. Okay, but all is not lost for Marx and labor theory value because both use value and exchange value are determined as units of labor. In other words, labor remains the sole source of value for everything in an exchange, in trading. Just as Marx said, private property becomes justifiable in the twin aspects of labor and labor spent and labor saved. You know, we, we want to acquire something based on how much uh, labor it saves us. Uh, that's usually um, the use value is this, the, the work that we don't have to do by acquiring it. This is how value is added to a hammer. It's not just the value of the labor put into the hammer. It's also the labor saved by getting the hammer and not using a rock or one's hand. <laughs> right. So he's going to ignore the metaphysical discussion of labor saved, except to say that Marx himself saw labor saved as the value of capital. It's what, like, it's what capital is. It was the private aspect of capital that Marx and the left railed against. The means of production of which most capital consists is problematic only when it's in private hands. So he brings it back around. This, however, is where libertarian socialism breaks with Marxism. It is not the private nature of the ownership of the means of production that is the problem. The problem is the fact that capitalists are not and never were the rightful owners of it. Capitalism is contradictory because it violates the justification for any private property established by Locke, meaning use. Capitalists maintain the right claim of ownership through the justification of expenditure of labor, but since they have neither the desire nor the possibility of using the means of production exclusively, their claim of ownership over them is wholly unjustified. It is, in fact, the worker and only the workers who can meet both the necessary conditions of ownership. First, they have the need for the materials in question. Second, through their own surplus labor, they paid for it. This argument holds true for other forms of rent. All rent. Oh, absolutely. So, for example, the tenant who uses the house has the priority claim of ownership if the house, if they pay rent. You know, because the rent is their surplus labor, right? So... They're paying their labor for the house, and they're using it. That's both conditions. What is exploitative about capitalism is that the rightful owners of the means of production are not the legal ones. I mean, they're not the moral owners, according to any, uh, according to the very political structure drafted by capitalists. The inherent villainy of private property is a Marxist red herring, no pun intended. The upshot of this concept of private property is that we have a clear path and reason to removing this exploitative element. It will require workers to become rightful owners, suggested by Richard Wolff. Boom. But it goes beyond justice, that it will require the abolition of the form of rent everywhere in society except where the rentee is the public. It will also require a guaranteed income, but for reasons that are not explicitly clear in this essay, but that is all. 
We don't aban- we need an abandoned private property, nor do we need outlandish distinctions between the socially necessary, the personal, etc. This proved only necessary to bolster the failings of Marxist theory. The solution is more simple and more elegant. Ownership of property is the right of the people who need it, use it, and pay for it. Not the state, not any particular community, no government, no investors. So that was Charles Rupert. He's a philosophy guy, by the way, and he teaches in the Philly uh, Philly area. And he was a he was the first prize winner of the Next System Project's 2017 essay competition. So good, good run the little writing award. And he teaches philosophy in the greater Philadelphia area. So yeah, lots lot to unpack there and review. But let's see if we can summarize in our last minutes. Everything, uh, all value can still be um, viewed as labor. And that, you know, what justifies property is that you pay for it with your labor one way or another. And right. the people who usually hold ownership aren't always the ones doing the work. In fact, they're not ever doing the work. Unless, say, a landlord's also the building manager, but then their income isn't derived from the fact that they own it. It's that they're managing the building. And they just so happen to right. also hold the legal document. Yeah, so any, any thoughts or reaction to that, um, Mike? I I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good piece. Uh, Lane's uh, labor and use pretty well. Have you been streaming this, by the way? I didn't check with you. I have been streaming this, yes. Cool. So you can find the stream of this, and we'll... Homegrown Hangout. A Homegrown ha- Hangout, yes. Homegrown uh, Hangout. Yeah. Yeah, same with YouTube. I have the YouTube for... channel three lefts and I'm also on Twitch and I somewhat I do not keep to it but I want to try to stream once a week just don't seem to work out but um, we'll see we'll see what happens uh, I was gonna try to do it last night but then I got into a I did this I streamed no no I did a zoom chat with someone in Australia and we jammed with saxophones and he had an electric woodwind instrument so it's like the size of a soprano sax or a clarinet and but it's like this big it's got a black box on it so like you blow into it but then it modulates it like it it's electric so like it, it's kind of synthes it makes your the air notes into like a synthesizer so you can like change the tone it's wild so let's wrap up my profound thanks for listening. Skills important as us talking. So I plan to listen to any constructive feedback. Please send any input, ideas for the show. If you want to be a guest, drop us a line at, uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, or email. Um, three left show. I think the email is three lefts at Gmail. This program is made as part of an independent community radio station. Please uh, create a membership at grandarts.org. Support us with your time by telling others you believe would be interested about the show, liking and sharing our pages as you do, um, bring up our socials, or just use it as a tool. This episode and the last 10 are all broadcast on most podcasting apps. A full archive of the podcast, all 110 episodes now, are on 3 